Mr. Derek Vienhoff. He's better known as Deke. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Yeah, Deke. Yeah, listen to the first three. I, I, uh, I really like some of the guests that you had on. They, um, uh, I like that guy that was talking about the uh, the, the schooling things oh. that, that he did. Yeah, that was my grade six teacher. He's a pretty cool, dude. Yeah, yeah. He was uh, a lot of what he was talking about was um, it seemed almost like the the precursors to uh, the unschooling movement, which is is a big thing that some some of the people that i hang out with support cool yeah i want to get into all that kind of stuff too um because you you got a lot of titles like so let me see if i can summarize (laughs) kind of what you are here because you got your twitter you've combined the words anarchist and statistician right anarchistician which is a cool twitter handle so you're Thanks. a freelance data scientist and quantitative uh, quantitative consultant. That's what you do for work. Uh, well, that's actually kind of old. That's uh, lately I've actually been doing full time contracting. Okay. So right now I'm I'm actually finishing up a a contract as a as a data analyst at a bank. Oh, cool. So so uh, it's like big data. Is that what they call it, or is it just small data? Is it regular size data? <laughs> Um, it's, it's data of all sizes. Uh, (laughs) Cool. Yeah, I was, I was trained mostly on small data, but, um, but, you know, big data is where the money is right now, so. Okay, I'm still trying to wrap my head around what that term means. Uh, Nobody knows what that term (laughs) is. Uh, big data, it really just means outrageously large data sets, uh, for the most part, And, and the, the, the very once data gets past um, past a certain point, it gets very difficult to visualize, and a lot of the the standard statistical methods become a little bit less clear. Um, so, so these these new methods of especially visualization have have sort of come about, and a lot of things like machine learning, which Take uh, take different different uh, approaches than than standard statistics have come about to to handle these really gigantic data sets like hundreds of thousands and millions of of data points that you just you just can't plot on a scatter plot and, and right. look at a general trend anymore. Right. So and and this has come about with the age of companies like Facebook and other social social media sites and what what other industries are taking advantage of that. Well, it's it's growing kind of all around as 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 far as I understand it, it because it's it's just the the fact that data warehousing has has been getting so um so much less expensive and oh, yeah. uh now it's you know everybody wants their own data scientist and mm-hmm. everybody wants somebody to to sort of uh, clean and warehouse and store these, this data, and uh, just you know, get some sort of business information out of it. Yeah, even if it's like not like game changing, but just just anything helps to sort of 
grow your your business or corporation, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and so it's just getting cheaper because like computers are getting cheaper and can hold more space. That- yeah. Pretty. Uh, yeah. It's really all about hard drive space because you know back in the in the seventies and eighties you were looking at a few megabytes in a gigantic room and yeah. Now you're looking at terabytes and that that can fit on your thumb. So yeah, it's pretty insane the, the computing power. And then with quantum computing too, I, which I also barely understand, but it has something to do with superposition of ones and zeros. Oh, that, that's beyond me. Uh, okay. I don't know. I mean, it, I, I have I've looked at that and it's it's really cool, yeah. but I don't I don't know how the the physics works. I, I just know it. It's pretty up there it's next so. level cool yeah um yeah so you're also you're a gun enthusiast and gun owner you're living yeah. you live in florida is that it N- no where where did you get that because i don't know <laughs> that's well no i mean that that's probably something i need to fix because i've i've been moving around okay um, I, I might have missed mis- mis- taken that from something else i'm not sure yeah, well, it's probably just something I have on a on an old website or something. I I, I lived in Florida for most of my life. I but think it was I, your blog, your blog spot, maybe. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm. I, I've probably got. I've I've probably got something that has me living in Arizona on it somewhere, and right now I'm actually living in Virginia. I'm I'm getting ready pretty soon to move to Seattle if I can. Right. Okay. So. Yeah, that's another interesting thing because I mean, our perspective here in Canada with the with gun control in the states. I mean, you know, we get a lot of media spin and whatnot, and people. It's there's a lot of varying opinions on you know from an outsider's perspective from over here, but we don't necessarily have the same uh, gun laws as the states, and also uh, way less guns and way less gun murders, but. Do you want to get into that a bit? Maybe you could break it down like uh, a bit of what you guys talk about on the Center Mass podcast and then a bit about sort of the misconceptions that are out there, you know? Yeah, well, the the thing about gun data and, and gun laws and all of that is it's just – there's so much media spin. Like you said, that it's just – it's very hard to decipher. I mean, you can't even tell what's what's going on with the data because there there there's a lot of there are a lot of people that kind of swing it one way, a lot of people that that swing it incorrectly the other, you know, and and there's a lot of BS on both sides, which is the most annoying thing about it. <laughs> and as you've seen, uh, you know, what I did was I really really don't like it when people misrepresent the facts from my side. Right. Because that puts that puts my side at a uh at a weakness. And as far as I'm concerned, the issue of gun rights is not doesn't have anything to do with the data. And to a certain extent, I don't don't think the data matter. Mm. Because where 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 I stand on the issue is just flat out that you know to confiscate guns to take people's guns that requires force that requires theft that requires violence yeah and i am against uh i'm against violence against peaceful peaceful people now the data i think is 
at this point, I think the data is actually pretty inconclusive. Mm-hmm. Because when you when you look at specifically in the states, when you look at the data from a state standpoint, you don't see any correlation between gun ownership and um you know things like murder, gun crime or even uh violent crime at all. And or that actually that should be backwards, violent crime or even gun gun crime. Mm. But when you look at it on a country point of view, there's a lot of little tweaks that people like to do with the country data. And if you look at what they call quote unquote uh industrialized countries, they s- they show that America has higher murders than, or a, a much higher crime rate and murder rate than than a place like uh, Canada. Yeah, and that's true. But there's a reason why they're saying only industrialized countries, because you know there are plenty of of non-industrialized countries that have similar gun laws, but outrageously high. Uh, crime rates, and yes, there are there are also mitigating factors there. There are there are all sorts of different factors that that go into it. But you can also you can still say the same thing when you're just looking at industrialized countries. Yeah, like um, it. It seems it seems that uh, every like most comparisons that are made, like you said, on either side, it's it's often apples and oranges. Like when they compare different countries, uh, that's one of the criticisms that you brought up in your Stephen Molyneux video that sort of broke down what he was saying, right? Because he was comparing South Korea, I believe it was, to the United right. States. But he was, and I don't understand necessarily all this stuff, but you were comparing the polynomial regression curve versus a linear regression line, and, and he had flipped his X and Y axes. Is that... Yeah, well, well, they so so flipping your x and y axis actually, it, as far as regression goes, it doesn't change whether or not two variables are correlated. That that's not what changes. The issue is the way the line actually uh, is is put on the the plot, uh-huh. and the way that uh, um, and it it does change something like polynomial regression because in polynomial regression. You know, you can't just flip a polynomial uh, function and then call it the same. I mean, because it's not even a function anymore at that point, mathematically. But um, with the the as as far as flipping the the axes, that's really where it gets into trouble. But also the the fact that it uh, when you're looking at a causal basis, the line will change in. Um, in in the the amount it, in, of effect. So, if you're looking at an x predicting a y, and uh, you see this this very large change in y from a very small change in x, but you're plotting it the wrong way. Well, if you actually turn it the correct way, then you see it that your predictor is actually causing a very low effect on, on your, your response. Okay. Could you give me an example, like uh, maybe just the one from the Stefan Molyneux video? Because I forget exactly what he was comparing again. But to get an idea for people to understand what we're talking about, like... Right. Well, well, in his situation, uh, the the big part of this is, is a lot of the stuff that I was talking about in 
the as far as him flipping the his regression problems, flipping the 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 curve and or flipping the axes in doing the linear rather than polynomial, it's it, all of those were were really just kind of educational um, stabs at him. like the, oh, okay. things that he was just doing wrong that you don't don't but, do in stats, like you don't do that. Well, kind of, but but they didn't even really apply in that event because he wasn't he shouldn't have been doing that type of regression in the first place. Okay. So it's not only was he doing the regression wrong, he shouldn't have even been doing it. Right. Because you know, it was it was time series data. And you do use regression in time series data, but in a completely different manner. And and you have to do uh filtering so that that it you, he was essentially t- using time series data and completely ignoring time as a variable, which you cannot, or, or as a parameter, which you cannot do. Okay, and sorry, time series data is plotting. It's just, it's just data over time. Okay. So what what he was doing was he was essentially taking the um he he was taking a uh, a single data point for each year. And this was poverty and crime, or uh, poverty and and crime rates that he was the two axes, or right? If it, it, yes, yeah, he was taking. Uh, I think it was poverty. He actually took poverty as the predictor, and he had a few different things for the response. He had a crime rate, violent crime rate, and uh, murder rate, or it might have been gun crime rate. I, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. But. Um, uh, to be to be honest, after I made that thing and put it out, yeah. I just kind of I answered a few YouTube comments and then I just never listened to Molyneux again because I was just tired of it. Yo, that's funny because that video that you made, which is how I found you, is also when I stopped listening to him, or it might have been just right after because <laughs> I forget what the news event was, but I actually love him the way he describes. Like I love his "The Truth About" episodes where he actually gives you a lot of unbiased facts and, and uh, sort of any new event that pops up that is, you know, he kind of takes the, the, the spin off of things and gives you, but he's got this emotion behind things that got really annoying to me. Yeah. And well, I he, he, he's really been increasing his emotional factor in, in his, um, in his videos. And, yeah. you know, he's, he calls himself a philosopher, which he's, he's not, his, he, he, he likes to say that he has a master's in philosophy, and he likes to say that he has a master's in history. Just whichever one is most convenient for him to say at the time. Neither are true. Well, the the last one's kind of true. Uh, his degree is in philoso- in the history of philosophy. That's what his degree is. So he hasn't, you know, he doesn't have that degree in philosophy like he likes to sort of at least imply. I'm fairly certain he has said multiple times. You know, actually stated that he has it. So that's a red flag, and uh, reminds me of Reza Aslan. Um, I know that name. I, I don't remember who. That's the guy who uh, called. Who was a big proponent of calling Sam Harris a bigot, and uh, he's okay. been on CNN a bunch. And oh yeah, that guy. About is... the, the the different Muslim countries and and how you know, basically a Muslim apologist um, guy. Yeah. But he often lies about his history degree. He says he has a master's of of uh, history or whatever, but he doesn't. Um, oh, really? Yeah, Stefan Molyneux, though, that, yeah. He's from, like, so the Mississauga, where his wife was 
the, the Ontario like he's a local to here to like I'm like an hour away from Mississauga so it's kind of funny that she was um she was indicted for or or what was the ruling she was not allowed to practice her psychology as it well, relates she, to his podcast anymore he, it was essentially the if the as far as I remember thing, right? yeah she she was not allowed to do the uh you know, I, I don't remember. I, she wasn't indicted she, or anything, and she was not like they didn't suspend her license either. Which a lot of people were were sort of exploding it into more than what it was. That's true. Yeah, you're right. But she was like put on probation, and they said that the the whole the the way that she was um, applying some of the defu stuff was bad you know, practices or whatever. Against right. their code or whatever, yeah. yeah. So the thing is, I, I'm that's not even what gets me about the about that whole thing because uh, Stefan Molyneux used to to talk on his podcast about how he would listen in on her sessions because she would have sessions at their house and he would listen to them through the through the vents and then you know whisper suggestions through the vents to the to her patients. He's such a and, weirdo. Yeah, and that's that's not not only is that just plain creepy, it's not but that's, allowed. <laughs> yeah, that's really against uh, ethics in psychology. Yeah, well, it's funny that um, somebody could be such a persona, and actually, I mean, I listened to him like you know a lot for like two or three years. I was pretty into him, and then you could kind of either they can turn on you, or you can kind of turn on them as a listener and kind of just think differently about them due to. Strange things like I mean he this thing with his brother I guess he's I didn't even know he had a brother but I'm listening to all these clips of of he would talk about the sort of uh, abuse he would deal with in his family but he's just very resentful to his brother and it, there's this website that I'm not sure if it even belongs to Stefan or or who it belongs to but it's describing all the ways that his brother's a bad person and that he's he, he tries to steal money from companies and moves from company to company. It's, trying to rip people off and it's like just weird stuff out there about him oh well yeah i haven't heard that the the <laughs> uh the only thing i heard that i remember about his brother is that he he was talking about how his brother was caught up in some some cult and um he was mad at mad at him for not listening to his own problems or something like that and and also how they apparently they had started a business together yeah software the, company Right, and and the software company was doing some really shady dealings, and uh, the, the weird thing was St- Stefan was he didn't seem to have any sort of um, shame or or guilt over it. You know, he he was, mm. but 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 I, I can't really talk too much about that because I, I don't remember it enough, and I yeah, don't want to just you know talk him. bad about somebody. Yeah, we're not out to, to really get st- yeah. Stevie, but uh, it's just interesting kind of thing, and and that's kind of yeah how I found you. So, have you done a lot of any other videos? Really, you say you're just working on the Center Mass podcast, which is a gun news podcast, and then the other one is uh, about skepticism. Uh, right. So i've I've been I've been working on some uh, some thought about skepticism in in anarchy and. One one of the things that I've noticed in the anarchist community is, is there there are a lot of 
ways that you know the, the ANCAP movement is is really a a um, an analytical thought based movement. You know, it's based on critical thought and um, and you know economic uh, you know studying of economics and philosophy and, and things like that. But at the same time, there are these these gaps in that that I've noticed where where this the this critical thinking has is kind of thrown by the wayside mm-hmm. and I want I, I would like to kind of address that in in many ways and some some of the examples of this are are areas like shamanism that that have really exploded and and it, I won't say that shamanism doesn't have its its uses as far as like you know there can be therapeutic um uses for for different psychedelics and hallucinogens and stuff like that right that's fine but it and and you know that's really a personal experience type thing but when, when you it goes into like you know you're talking to the mother goddess and and things like that when you take ayahuasca and ayahuasca is this miracle drug that makes everybody have their you know it it makes your entire experience and right and it and it makes your it completely changes your life well these people are acting essentially the same as they did before they took ayahuasca and they're they're no more or less successful you know and right. it, Essentially, what they did was they had a, a really, a really crazy time, and they barfed a lot, and you know they they came out of it thinking that they were a changed person. And right, so that's the that's the skept, that's the skeptic view of sort of the transcending experience through psychedelics, or let some people want to call it shamanism. When I think of shamanism, I think of uh, a shaman as someone who guides you through maybe a psychedelic experience. Is that Fair to say. Right. Yeah. So, so as far as that goes, you know, that's, you, you know, I don't. I, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's it, at least I don't. You know, that's a personal decision, yeah. and I don't. That's not like, that's not claiming something that is not provable or not. Right. But I. But I. I speak more of like the the shaman area that that's really claiming this this. Uh, hold on spirituality and and this sort of uh, this woo of of um, uh, of knowledge beyond right. the mere mortal. You know. Okay, so this that's actually interesting because I was just listening to the new episode of Joe Rogan, which has um, uh, what's the dude's name now? The guy that made the Magical Egypt series, John Anthony West. I'm not familiar. Uh, he's this archaeologist, and he's him and Robert Shock are those guys that kind of believe the Sphinx is older than it is, and that there's these, you know, Egypt goes back farther than the people think it does. And he was bringing up this thing about uh, that he believes humans should be, or the goal of humanity based on the Egyptian tradition is actually to become immortal. And Joe was like, "What do you mean by that?" And he was saying, just this whimsical kind of talking around. The, the the real argument where he was saying you know just just it wasn't really it didn't have a concrete point about what he meant about transcendence or about the afterlife you know he was saying there there's people who have seen glimpses of the afterlife or you know people use different words to describe it and then Joe said but if you die and you go to the afterlife like you're saying 
then what is the thing we have to do as people to achieve this transcendence that you're talking about, right? Right. And I think that relates somehow to the psychedelic experience because entheogen is the word for psychedelics and that root word, I guess, means to see God. And that's not an ancient word that was coined, I think, like in the last century or whatever. But there's this similarity between all these experiences. And you're right, people have this... uh, Maybe I guess when they first discover it too, and maybe because it's such a new thing in the West, new as in you know decades or maybe a century new, like psychedelic uh, ingestion of, of psychedelic substances. It's like, yeah, they people act like they have the answer to what question I don't know, health or survival or whatever the the thing is. Like you're talking right. about uh, just just some extra knowledge, right, that we can't get otherwise. Yeah. And what is it? What is that thing that they're claiming that they're? I mean, I, we could break that down too. I, I believe there is some truth to to sort of uh, getting ideas from that experience, or, or having a transformative experience to to the way you think, or just opening your like. I don't. Know, do you smoke marijuana? I couldn't get that from the Center Mass podcast. Do you guys smoke weed? <laughs> uh, I I have. I don't think I don't think Aaron does. Um, I have. I don't currently. Okay. Yeah, like I do occasionally. Um, there's been times that I did more heavily. There's been times that I didn't at all. Um, so my perspective on the whole psychedelic experience is that, yeah, you can't say, you can't really say many concrete things about it because it's just a qualitative change in experience. Yeah. And I, I hear what you're saying about how, you know, the person who does ayahuasca is, yeah, they puked a bit, they jumped in the river, they got out, and now they're they're still Fred, or they're still the same guy. But, I mean, what do you say about the, the, um, the evidence of people breaking addictions from, from psychedelic uh, drugs? Is that something different than what you're, you're talking about? Um, I... It's, not really so as far as that goes i mean i think that merits study mm-hmm. and i i think that's promising and and i i would i would definitely support more study on that you know mm-hmm. i i don't know if i haven't looked into it enough to know how much has has actually gone into it so far but you know i i think if if that if there's something to that i think that would be fabulous and I, I think it's definitely a route worth going mm-hmm. um, I would be very hesitant to to just say hey man take a bunch of shrooms and you won't smoke won't, anymore won't pop pills anymore or whatever it is yeah right yeah exactly but um, uh, no that's but interesting yeah. um, I mean I think there's I think John Hopkins has a mushroom study and there's an Maybe like another one that's prominent with uh, PTSD and like MDMA, something. But again, the, you, you know, I uh, there's probably only a few, right? Or it's it's right. just the newness of it. Well, the thing is, is a, a lot of that is, you know, the worst thing is a lot of that it has been, you know, the, the study behind this has been just squashed squashed by things like drug scheduling and stuff like that yes this stuff hasn't been allowed to be studied when it should be yeah and i you know i would 
like, like I said, I wouldn't say anything definitive, but I think there probably is something to that, you know, something really to that. And, um, you know, because MDMA, that was used by psychologists for, for stuff like couples therapy mm-hmm. before it was made illegal. So there, there clearly are therapeutic uses for these, these drugs in some way, you know, or at least some of them. Mm-hmm. So to not study that, I think, would be is completely foolhardy. Yeah, it's like very nearsighted on the part of, uh, well, I want to say on the part of the government, the laws, but I, yeah. you know, and it's something that your podcast makes me think about too. Is I, I just always consider the giant system that is, say, a country or the United States, for example. Like we have these issues with our with the scheduling and and you know what's legal and what's not legal, but it's like it's and maybe this can bring me to to the anarchist movement, which I want to understand a bit more. Is like what are the changes that need to be made and where to make them, who makes them, when do we make them? It's, you know, there's so many steps, I think, to sort of changing the way a country uh, runs. And I feel like it's such a a collaborative uh, uh, exchange of of events, if that makes any sense. Like, it's like these, if you look at history, it's like, oh, you know, 1967, this changed in the civil rights movement, and then this changed, and then this changed. And it's like, can you really say that each event in history directly caused the the next change? And you know, it's 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 so hard to 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 sort of trace everything back. If if that makes any sense, uh, just right. You know, it's it's like it's there's so many different things that need to be done. And and so, how does the what is an anarchist in the modern uh, term like uh, of an anarchist? What 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 can you explain to people that'll that'll make them understand what? Uh, yeah, what that is and what an anarchist would want to see in a government. Is it no government at all? Uh, uh, well, it depends on the anarchist. Okay. <laughs> and, and when I say that, I mean it really doesn't depend on the anarchist, but the um, the the quote-unquote anarchist movement has sort of these two factions, and you, you've got the anarcho-communists and the anarcho-capitalists. Okay. And the anarcho-communists are the sort of historical... Um, Anarchists, they, they they take historical claim to the term, and they have this sort of um, commune, well, a communist vision of of anarchism. Yeah. Uh, and the anarcho-capitalist is a much more modern uh, development out of modern libertarianism, which would be that. Uh, we live that we should live in a in a society completely based on voluntary exchange now that's what i subscribe to so so for me i am i am an anarchist second that's not my my focus my focus on i is on voluntarism or voluntary uh, voluntarianism mm-hmm. so i am a voluntarian which means i believe that all human interaction should be voluntary Non-aggression now, principle is that where that comes in? Right, exactly. Um, so that means I don't believe in stealing from people. I don't believe in hurting people. You know, I don't believe in causing harm to other people. And what that sort of results in is just the conclusion that government is not only unnecessary but it is immoral, and that's what makes me an anarchist so we take anarchism as we we take the word anarchy as the 
um, the definitional manner. So an prefix no and arcos no ruler no you know uh, no archon right so to speak and uh, while anarcho communists take it more of a, in the the historical context rather than the um, uh, the uh, I'm, yeah. I'm blanking on the term but yeah no I get what you're saying so, so they, they trace it back to where did com- where did modern communists is that Karl Marx and stuff or was is this before that even? Uh, well, Karl Marx was the founding um, thinker, so to speak. I, I, I have I hesitate to use that term for him, uh, but he he was the the <laughs> thinker behind the creation of communism, and um, it's uh, the Communist I, I Manifesto, remember. right? Right, the, the Communist Manifesto and the uh, Das Kapital. So this and, 1848 is when he wrote the Manifesto. Okay, yeah, and he was um, he's he's considered an economist by many. I I don't really consider him an economist because he takes a he skips a lot of steps in his thought process that really do not need to be skipped. Oh, okay, and um, he. He, he takes a lot of liberties with with his uh, um, uh, with his uh, starting points, like the, where he starts with his with his whole thought process, with his with his axioms and stuff like that. Okay. Obviously, I'm going to come at it with a certain with a particular viewpoint. Right. So I, I, I won't I won't pretend that I'm not biased here, but. Uh, but he, you know, I'm not really sure where the, the connections are between him and Lenin, but Lenin, you know, of course, brought it really, um, Lenin and the, the Russian anarchists I, I, movement, I, I believe, um, brought it forth with the Bolsheviks and, and whatnot. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, then the, the rest is history, so to speak. <laughs> right, right. It's a bloody history. Yeah, definitely. It's it's arguably a lot more. Well, it, not even arguably is absolutely more bloody than than the the history of the Nazis. It's just a sheer like like death, like numbers of deaths and stuff. Like yes, absolutely. Yeah. Not and not even just from misallocation of resources, but from actual you know concentration camps. They just weren't called concentration camps. They were called gulags. You right. Know? And that was like a yeah, it's the same exact idea, right? Right, and and I don't, uh, yeah, I think Stalin himself racked up a bigger body count than than Hitler, but Stalin and Mao and and Pol Pot together, no doubt did, absolutely no question did, huh. and and the thing that terrifies me is that there's there are people currently who call themselves Maoists, and there are actually groups of people that you know yeah. are. There, there's a group here in Richmond that are actual Maoist. Maoist. <laughs> they call themselves revolutionaries, and you know they, they're they're one of the the groups that that my uh, I have a close friend here named Cal. He he runs a uh, or he I shouldn't say runs, but he started this uh, uh, this group called Liberate RVA. Right, and, and it's a uh, it's a an anarchist 
movement, trying to sort of uh, uh, have a uh, local burgeoning of, of true anarchism. And that's one of the the groups that he has to constantly fight. And and I I mean fight with words, obviously. Not, <laughs> yeah. Not with fisticuffs or words. <laughs> um, but it, it's this these uh, these Maoists in this town, and it's kind of crazy. So, what would the Mao? What is their tenets that would differ from your buddy's view of anar- anarchy? Like, what specifically did they do? Do they wear Maoist garb like Hillary Clinton? Well, I <laughs> um, I don't I haven't seen them do that, but uh-huh. uh, I, I actually I don't think I think there may might be a couple of Maoists that are. Uh, that consider themselves anarchists. Oh, okay. So I'm I'm conflating them a bit there. They're right. Maybe, so yeah. Right. So they're. I mean, they're, the communist movement and the anarcho-communist movement. Um, the the anarcho-communist movements are are just communists that don't admit that they require government uh. to uh, have communism. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, but the Maoists, I don't think they even take any. I don't think they even try to BS people telling them that that they're anarchists. They're they're flat out just full on commie. Oh, okay. But but they're I mean, you know, it's it's essentially we have fundamental difference of of belief in in things like self-ownership. You know, voluntarians, anarcho-capitalists um we believe that people own themselves that you do not have the right to somebody else's labor to somebody else's uh you know anything but uh you know communists come under the the assumption that property is theft and that people have equal share of everything Right, and that being the communists would say the state, the state owns things. Um, it, it well, the that's the inevitable result. I don't think any communist will actually admit to uh, that belief. Okay, so that's just a, a byproduct. Of right. What, what they will say is the people own things. Ah. Yeah. Right, but it's more of a co- the people is like an entity. It's like the collective people, right? Okay. Yeah, and, and that's—I mean—that's a a good term for it. it. It it comes down to the the difference between collectivism and individualism. Ah, uh, okay. So, what would the, an anarchist want to see happen? What it would like? So, free. Uh, sorry, what was it called again? The Cal's organization. Oh, Liberate RVA. Liberate RVA. What does RVA stand for? Is that just the area that it's? Uh, yeah, RVA is the um, it's the local uh, acronym for Richmond, Virginia. Oh, okay. And so, what are some of the things that they would want to see change? Like, let's just say magic wand. Uh, the government's like, we want to give uh, Cal some some say here. So, um, well, I, I will say number one that Cal will know. <laughs> Cal would not uh, accept that premise of of uh, a magic wand. In- Neither would any of us. Well, that that premise of having the ring of power, oh, okay. um, of being able to, you know, but the uh, what what we would like to see is the complete 
obsolescence and abolishment of uh, or abolition of the state in in all of its forms. So this is the thing. Like I, I struggle to kind of wrap my head around it because the all the ideals or, or the uh, forgive me if I'm using incorrect terminology, but like all the the ideas that they uh, that an anarchist has make perfect sense. Like as far as an individual to individual basis, like uh, the non the non aggression uh, principle. You know, no use of force. Uh, all that makes perfect sense, but. It's like on a practical level, I just so struggle so much to find out uh, how it would really change. You know, like how many years would it take for a state to? Uh, has there been an example of a of a state that's arisen uh, with this sort of um, mentality? Like there was one in India, wasn't there? A, a city they made in India a few years back that they're were, they were trying to call it a utopia. I've seen this shared on Facebook sometimes. Is you know this place no crime and no nothing. Meanwhile, you look into it, and there's like. A lot of sexual assault and different things, and but they have no currency and like I forget what it's called now. Maybe I can look it up here. Okay, and, uh, I, I remember something like that, saying something like that. Um, I don't, I, I don't know anything about it. Yeah, Oroville is what it's called. Okay, City of Dawn, experimental township in India, founded in 1968. Okay. Universal, okay. universal town where men and women of all countries are able to live in peace and progressive harmony above all creeds, all politics, and all nationalities. Uh, yeah. So, I don't know how successful that is or was or what, but yeah, like, what is the? Is it just this? Is it just uh, an idealist kind of viewpoint on on politics, or are you? Is it? Are you just saying that that's just? That's just what you agree with, like anarchy. Just that just makes sense to you, so that's what you believe, sort of. But do you see a practical implementation of the of the principles? Well, personally, I am. Um, I'm sort of back and forth on it. I I generally don't think that I will see anarchy like as a. In your I, I don't think that I will see a, a real anarchist society in my lifetime. Uh, um, now, to clarify that, you know, we already live in an anarchist society to a certain extent because, you know, our our day to day dealings are anarchist. You know, we don't do that. We don't deal with each other based on the auspices of the state. You know, and the the fact is, you know, we don't kill each other because we don't want to kill each other. (laughs) We don't do that because the state's telling us not to. And in generally, we don't steal from each other because the state's telling us not to. You know, most of that is our own um, just non-state interactions. Right. Like, it goes back to the thing about gun-free zones and how criminals don't obey laws. So having a gun-free zone is not going to prevent an attack or a, or anything, right? Right. So I think for the most part human beings interact voluntarily to begin with. You yeah. know, and the more the more state uh, the more state intervention in people's lives that you see or then the less and the more corrupt the society becomes. And I've I've seen this in in just 
just moving around the U.S. Honestly, because uh, you know, going to and, and Cal's not going to like this from me because he Cal. loves Richmond. I don't like Richmond. I think that Richmond is a very corrupt town, and the reason why is because it's a very, very big government town. At least I think the reason why, mm. and it's. It, when I was in Florida, you know, the tax structure in Florida is just awesome. Mm. It's awesome compared to most of the other places that I've been. And Florida isn't that bad of a place when it comes to the people. You know, the people in Florida are generally, they treat each other somewhat decently. Um, but when I moved to Richmond, I since I've moved to Richmond, I've seen the most... You know, frequent scam artists <laughs> than I've ever seen in my life. It's it was it was really somewhat phenomenal. And when I went to uh, I went to New Hampshire, I actually tried to move to New Hampshire once for a little while. And New Hampshire has probably one of the the freest tax structures in in the United States. <laughs> and New Hampshire was great. You know, the people up there were great. And it, I just loved it up there. And again, for the most part, unless you went into um, like the inner city of Manchester or or uh, um, Nashua, you know, for the most part, people treated each other pretty well. I mean, they weren't specifically friendly, but they they treated each other honestly. You know, they 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 were honest with each other. They they were. Uh, ethical with each other. They didn't try to con each other. Yeah. Um. But sort of went off on a tangent. Back. To well, yeah. Well, you should try Canada sometime. It's pretty chill up here. Yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. Uh, I I took a trip up to Canada when I was when I was about to turn twenty one. Um. I had never been to a country before. Mm. So uh, I told my friend, "Hey, get in the car. We're driving to Canada." Sick. Yeah, so we drove up to uh, Toronto and spent a little time just walking around and checking it out, and um, and it was this. This is probably partly because I was driving over the uh, I think it's the Rainbow Bridge from Detroit. Okay, so that you came that way, so you wouldn't have come through my city because my city is if you come through uh, through uh, Buffalo and uh, and uh, Niagara Falls. Yeah, we exited that way. Ah, okay, right. so. So we drove back through Niagara Falls. Ah, okay. Because we had to see Niagara Falls while we were up there. Yeah, yeah. Well, what did you think of it? Oh, it was great. And we saw it from the Canada side, which is uh, apparently the, the good side. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we liked it. <laughs> cool. But, um, but, you know, as soon as we crossed the Rainbow Bridge out of Detroit, it's like, wow, everything just feels more chill. Yeah, well, that's interesting that you'd say that because that's the kind of, you know, the old thing about Canada that people say. I mean, there's so much space, there's so much nature, especially in that where we're talking about the area that uh, that you come through there, like this whole area, Ontario. I mean, it's, the population's all in Toronto, and then there's so much space in the province to the to the north that uh, that well, there's really barely anything going on up there, actually. Yeah, yeah, I had a. Um, uh I dated a girl a, a long time ago from, uh, uh, she lived in a, uh, 
place close to Ottawa, or she was she grew up in a place close to Ottawa. It's called Calabogie. Okay. <laughs> she has she has a lot of good stories about about that area and. Uh, um, yeah. But, so like it makes me think about just the gun. I mean, clearly. Okay, so when people look at stats, right? Like, like you know, remember Michael Moore's movie, The uh, Bowling for Columbine? Yes. When he, do, what do you think about Michael Moore? Is he like a is he a data manipulator or is he an emotional manipulator? He is probably the most intellectually dishonest <laughs> video maker I've ever seen. But in they're my good. Life. Like he, I know he. It, you got to watch it with like the biggest grain of salt, but he. He makes some good movies. You know what I mean? Like some of the points, and it's they're well put together. And well, he's a good filmmaker. Yeah, I, I, I will give him that. I mean, you know, his his uh, movies are very well made. They are. I I don't believe a single point that he makes in them. No, I hear what you're saying. Like I brought it up because you know he goes over the border and he. Uh, knocks on a bunch of people's doors and this is in I believe it was in Windsor because he goes over from Detroit and he, he knocks on people's doors and he tries their door handle and he you know three four five houses he goes to the doors are unlocked well right. how 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 much camera tricks is are going on like he clearly clearly not every house like we lock our doors in Canada it's not like that was just such a exaggerated point that he was making and what does that even really prove about like again, it's apples and oranges. He's trying to say that Canada's this great place that doesn't have, you know, virtually any whatever crime and, and gun yeah. deaths, and America is terrible and has all these problems. But the problem. Well, the funny is, thing is, I, I've I have lived in towns in America where people generally don't lock their doors too. Right, so. right, right. You could go anywhere and make that. Yeah. Right. So to you, I mean, so your your whole overall view of sort of the 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 gun crime in the states is just that there's not really one thing you can point to statistically because there's so much well i mean there's three over 300 billion people you have the country with the most guns i believe per capita um right you know any correlations that are made are, are, are just kind of very biased to one side or the other there's no real middle ground where everyone's coming together and saying the, the data clearly shows this right right well well so like i like i said before i i i as far as i've seen the data seems inconclusive so so i could see um i do think gun laws may have an effect on suicide uh they may reduce suicide i also don't think that's a good i mean the if it does affect it it's it's a it's a modest effect and that's I also believe that suicide is a personal right so hmm. there's that but as far as guns and crime the uh, I, I as far as I've seen in the data there doesn't seem to be any specific um, it, any real correlation upwards or downwards um I would say that I have, I've I have not looked at it it in a count like at a county level or at a city level because that's it's difficult data to get and I just you know yeah, yeah. it's tedious it's a lot of work so um, 
I would suspect that that would drive the correlation downwards. If if you looked at it strictly at a at a county level, as in uh, more guns, less crime. The uh, reason for this is from cherry picking, though. So it's you know I can't say that that's definitive. Okay. But when you look at areas in the United States with the highest gun laws, or, or with the the harshest gun Strictest, laws, yeah, yeah, they are huge crime centers, and the crime has has gotten worse as, as you know after gun laws are implemented. Hmm. Now, that's not saying that that's because of gun laws. That could have that could be a continuing trend. And the idea is that someone, that when people know that people are armed, they're less prone to want to rob that house or something like that. Is that where? It's the um, idea? Well, part there are, are multiple reasons for it. So that's that's one of them. There is that the preventative measure. Um, like, and here's another cherry picking thing that that people like to bring up. Uh, Kennesaw, I think it was Kennesaw, Georgia. They they actually had a law that required all citizens to own firearms. And the um, I want to say the nineties or something. And they didn't have to have it on them, but they had to own one. You know, they had to have a firearm in their house. And the crime rate plummeted. uh, You know, so. Yeah, and you're not saying, like you said, that's cherry. You're just saying that's one example. Right. Yeah, that's that's not that's not specific. I mean, it's evidence, but it's not significant evidence, you know. Right. Um but also when you look at things like, you know, mass shootings. Mass shootings are the biggest news item yeah. that are going behind these these assault weapon ban uh things and and these yeah but nobody uh, dies from mass shootings like uh, people die but not that many people die like statistically right like more people more people are dying from other things so so there are two two parts of that yeah um one yeah the the amount of people that die in, in in mass shootings of all gun deaths is extremely low that that is a very low number and um, two, all but one of the mass shootings in the last like twenty years. And now that don't quote me on that number, right? But, but all but one in the last very you know relatively large amount of time when this has been really big in the news have been in gun-free zones mm-hmm. in places where the victims were unarmed. Yeah, uh, were and were you know advertised as being unarmed, and. You know, it, it, things like this indi- really indicate to a lot of people, and th- these are a lot of the big arguments for in, in the pro-gun side that aren't statistically valid, but they are something that need to be said. You know, yeah. th- they they need to be in the ar- in the in the argument. Um, they're also. Uh, ha- do you know Fred uh, Friedrich Bastiat? No. Uh, he he was an old um, French classical economist. And he has this uh, one of his his most um, quoted uh, points is about the seen and the unseen. You know, there are seen evidence, or, or there there are uh, um, 
you know, things in economics that are seen, like, you know, the effects of whatever policy, like if you break a window, you know what's, what the effect is. The uh, person who, or, or the store owner, has to buy a new window. Mm-hmm. So his money is going somewhere, um, and it's being spread through the economy because he's, you know, spending it on this new window. Yeah. But what's unseen is what he would have spent that money on if he hadn't had that uh. window. And uh, I think that as to things like guns, you know, you don't see very often the preventative, um, the positives of the preventative measure of ownership of guns and whatnot. Right. You know, a lot of times what happens is a, and, and I've heard plenty of anecdotal evidence uh, uh, for this, of course, Again, that's not significant in a scientific um, uh, view, but I've seen plenty of, or, or heard rather, plenty of anecdotal evidence of people that have merely brandished or even held their their hand in a manner where it was obvious that they were grasping on a gun, and it prevented somebody from victimizing them. You know, right. and it wasn't something that was ever reported, or because it would. What would you do to report that? Yeah, you know, so that's a totally unseen part of it. Right, exactly. And that's, you know, that's not going to show up in statistics. That's uh. And that's one of the biggest problems with with social uh, with social studies. I, I hesitate to use the term social sciences. <laughs> what terms uh, do you not hesitate to use? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, good point. <laughs> but um I I don't like the term social sciences because I I don't I don't like calling something that does not that you cannot apply consistent predictive uh, right. power to uh, as a science. I don't like. I don't think economics is a science, and even even a lot of Austrian econo- economists and, Aus- and Austrian economics uh, students will jump on me for that, and I, they have. But I I don't view uh, economics particularly. Uh, macro study of uh, economics to be a science. I think it's more of a uh, an application of philosophy, maybe. Okay. Uh, certainly, an application of logic. Frankly, I think economics is, is sort of stands on its own uh, outside of science, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Right. That makes sense. There's just so many. I was going to say variables, but there's so many... What's another word for variables that is not a data thing? Like, there's so many events, right? It's an, it's a flowing... It's an ebb and flow of, of human interaction and, and events through yeah, time. Exactly. That, that there are exchanges of things and whatnot. There's not... Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, well, well that's... I mean, that's, his, that's exactly the reason. There will always be extraneous variables that you cannot account for it, when you're looking at things like human interaction that you you know anytime something happens that you know where an economist studies a uh, an event that occurs after a certain policy and they say you know see this follows my economic model because this event happened and the Economist whose model failed in that manner can always point to something 
to say, well, the only reason why this didn't fit my model is because this variable yeah. caused it to go the other way. And that always happens. That's why you you still have multiple schools of economics. Right. Okay. Well, that, I mean, yeah, that, I heard a quote once that was, what is it? Uh, you get uh, three economists in a room, you have four opinions or something like that. Right, exactly. Um, the only economist that I listen to is Peter Schiff. I listen to his podcast. Mm-hmm. I still don't really know what he's talking about, but <laughs> he's at least seems like he's... Uh, not he doesn't necessarily have an agenda. He's just sort of reporting on different things the Fed are doing or whatnot, and what he he kind of he, he makes a lot of predictions and gets them right pretty often. Yeah. Um, you know, I I, um, uh, I sung around a campfire with his brother. What? <laughs> yeah, his uh, his brother and Milton Friedman's son. <laughs> Where was this? This is uh, is he an anarchist too, or was this an economist meeting? Uh, no, it was, it was a uh, there was a festival called Pork Fest in New Hampshire. Okay, this is back in 2013, and um, uh, Peter Schiff spoke, and Andrew Schiff uh, stuck around, and you know, honestly, Andrew Schiff is the cooler brother. I will no, say, no, really, <laughs> yeah, Andrew Schiff is a really cool guy. So what does but, he do? Uh, uh, he's uh, he's also an economist, oh. um, or or at least a financial analyst. I, I'm not exactly sure, but he he's ah. in that line of work. Um, but he and his they actually, I, I think they both uh, either co-own or work. Uh, one of them owns, and the other one is is working with the other at at the. Um, in that same company, right? Uh, like he sells gold or something, or, or whatever it is. Yeah, he it's gold and like foreign investments and stuff yeah. like that. Or I think he might do currency exchanging. Uh, yeah. He probably does a lot of different stuff. Um, I just want to get back to one thing we were we were talking about uh, with the gun laws and mass shootings. You know, it's it's brought up often uh, in Australia when they put the. The ban, uh, what was the ban? Was the ban on all guns or was it on assault rifles? After they had their their last mass shooting, I believe, which was in, I want to say, I can't remember, like maybe 10 to 15 years ago? Is that... Yeah, I, I, th- I think the the buyback and the, the anti-gun laws were in 96 or 98, if right. I recall correctly. Yeah, okay. So And then, you know, people will bring it up uh, nowadays saying, look, Australia hasn't had uh, a mass shooting since this uh, policy change went into effect. So this obviously works. Uh, and I guess what's implied by sharing that meme is that you believe that that should be implemented in America and that will solve all the mass shooting problems. I mean, the, it, like we're saying, even relates sort of to the economy stuff. Like one one change in policy is is you can't. Uh, it's not been proven, but the fact that they haven't had a mass shooting since, which by the way, that it was actually a lie. I mean, I think there was a school shooting that was still considered a mass shooting that happened like in like two thousand five or something. Uh, right. But so what? So they haven't had a mass shooting since. Does that mean that they're not going to have one tomorrow? Like, yeah. Well, I've seen that. Uh, I, I've seen stuff like that, and and I've also seen recently. And this is actually something that that I need to address with my um, my my friend Aaron. He 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 posted a 
another one that was really lambasting Australia's gun control. It was it was another louder with Crowder post. Okay. And it 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 made some points like gun ownership actually has really skyrocketed in, in the last few years uh, despite the gun buyback program and there were some issues with that 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 I I had um, I'd have to look at it again okay is that a true fact that uh, gun ownership has actually gone up I don't know oh okay uh, I haven't looked that far into it yet but yeah. but it, whether or not it is um, it, well it it would not even be that gun ownership itself has gone up. It's that that reported gun ownership has gone up or, like, infractions of gun ownership have gone up. But, of course, if you make it against the law to own guns, then clearly the infraction of gun ownership is going to go up because you have made gun ownership an infraction. So, um, right. It, it, it was something along those lines that that I, I really kind of that sort of tweaked in my brain when I when I saw it, but yeah. But again, I'd have to look at it again. Um, but yeah, the the as far as the the mass shooting thing go, I, I've actually seen a similar point made about uh, also about Australia and about uh, the United States in the minimum wage argument. Oh yeah, I just saw that one. Oh, I think. Oh, maybe it was on your blog that I was reading where you compared. You actually plotted the data of the price of a Big Mac, uh, right, to, the, yeah. to the minimum wage. Yeah, exactly, and that's ex- in exactly an example of cherry picking, where you know somebody has picked out this one country that has a high minimum wage and how it has not affected the price. Well, for one, the price is not necessarily the thing that's going to be affected. It could also more, uh, you know, have a bigger effect on employment rates than it does on the on the price. But two, you know, like you said, if you actually look at it on the, on uh, you know, take all of these different countries and put it on a chart, it doesn't really necessarily go downward, does it? So. No, and people got to realize, I think, in today's day and age, that uh, or we got we got to get past this. I don't know how we're going to do it, but this whole meme think generation is like people's opinions have been boiled down to memes that are two sentences in a picture and it doesn't ever caps encapsulate this like an entire issue ever yeah you know it's uh well if it makes you feel any better i don't i don't think it's well actually it probably won't it'll probably make you feel worse i don't think it's a generational thing because no we've had the same the same problem as long as there have been newspapers where everything would be you know cut down to a headline and yeah. that's all people would see and somebody can have a very detailed arg- uh, um, uh, article that really lays out the nuances of something, but their editor slaps a headline on there and that's, that's completely opposite of what the article is talking about, and that's all people see. And yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, that the headline, the headline generation is not necessarily a generation thing because it's it's has been around in some form. I, I think maybe. Maybe it's just the the quick sharing of everything due to social media it sort of has an effect on people. It even on myself, like I do it all the time when I just read a meme and then, you know I try to use my filters so I just say, oh, I'll maybe I'll look that up later. I don't automatically call someone and say, hey, did you know that such and such happens in Australia? Like you know, give it some time, 
think about yeah. it. But but yeah, the quick sharing of things, I don't know. It gives gives off the, the perception that it, you fully believe whatever you're sharing, and then that's the problem too. Is some people, you know, they share a meme and then someone criticizes what they've shared, and they say, oh, it's just a meme. I don't, you know, I don't really believe what you're saying. I believe. I just believe this part of it. Well, you're not really explaining that in the by sharing that meme, you know. Right. And, and and realistically, even if they do, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of times people will post, and, and I do this. People will will post a an article online, and then they will write their own commentary on top of it, you know, on a <laughs> Facebook post or something. But people don't don't see the commentary. They don't they don't read that. They just they skip right past it because. It yeah. sort of it starts to sort of blend into the background. So all you see is the article. So you click on it, you look at, it, you skim through it, and you say, "What are you nuts?" Yeah, you know. Like, and and when realistically they're they're writing a commentary about how stupid the thing is. Right, right, right. Um, but, but but I think what's what what's happened with the the quick sharing thing is it's turned it's turned the general population into shortcut journalists and. Mm-hmm. You you can see that as sort of you know yeah you're just you, you want to be really quick to the the uh, the scoop you know you everybody wants to be the first to the scoop so they find something they say okay got to get that out you know so I, I look clever before everybody else on my friends list looks yeah. clever yeah um but on the positive side it's kind of turned everybody into journalists so. <laughs> At least they're interested in, you know. Yeah, at least they're some type of journalist. That's a point. (laughs) Um, Glass half full, right? Totally. The one thing I just uh, thought of when we were talking about not seeing a true anarchist society in your lifetime. Now, Elon Musk just had this announcement about uh, releasing his plans to, to go to Mars and, you know, backing up the biosphere because Earth's going to be around for probably a good while, but maybe not forever. And I was wondering if you think maybe that's a possibility in the future to, to for people to experiment with their own sort of uh, styles of governing uh, once we become multi multiplanetary, uh, yeah, a multiplanetary civilization. Well, it's kind of out there, but hey. I'm I'm not convinced that we ever will become a multiplanetary civilization in in any meaningful sense. Mm-hmm. Um, like actually having colonies and and such. Like maybe Mars will happen, but not anything uh, else. I'm not I'm not even convinced Mars will happen. Are you sure? Have you seen this guy? How confident he is? <laughs> oh, I'm <laughs> I'm absolutely not sure. Right, right. It's just I. There seem to be so many impediments, and it just seems more and more scientifically evident that yeah, that that type of long range, uh, significant long range um, uh, uh, transportation is infeasible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I will I, say, you, you know. D- Entrepreneurial spirit has over and over again proved people with with that opinion wrong. Right. So, and if it, it's anyone to do it, it, Elon Musk. I mean, PayPal, Tesla, right. SpaceX. He's a, he's 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 a busy guy. He he is a busy guy, uh, and he and he certainly is a dreamer. <laughs> yeah. 
but it, if if we do start colonizing different uh, different places in space, then I certainly could see see that happening. Uh, you know, people experimenting with different civilizations. But the thing is, you know, we we don't necessarily need to experiment with that anywhere else or, or in the future. We we do have examples of anarchistic societies already. You know, the Amish are essentially an anarchist society. Okay. Because they don't they don't rule each other by force. They don't have you know like a council that that says you must do such and such or. You know, we will steal this from you, or we will lock you in a cage, or, or whatever. What right. they do is is they essentially just, hey, dude, you screwed up. We're not talking to you anymore, and we're not dealing with you anymore. And you just they excommunicate them or something? Is that what they do? Well, they ostracize them. Ah, uh, yes. And they, they what I think what they call it is shunning. You right, know, they, right. They shun them, and. I I think they even continue to to um support that person like you know with food and and water and stuff. Oh, okay. They but still they, force you what to wear though, right? Um they don't force you to. It's just, you know, you That's wear what, what you the do. community wears or you or you're not a part of the community. Oh, you know, okay. you, or you are I don't know if they even go so far as to shun you if you're not wearing the right clothes. But uh, but the 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 thing about the clothes, I don't think it's that it's specific clothes that they have to wear. I think it's just you know you cannot wear clothes made of certain materials because they're they're against their rules, and you have to cover up. And uh, the clothes that come out of that are just generally uniform. Now, let's enlighten me. I don't really know in the in the states. So, if if there's Amish communities, what what in a what relation do they have to governments? Do they do they receive all services from governments and do they obey all laws? Or do they ha- are they like uh, sort of on their own land and they have their own laws to some degree? Well, they still have to. I I think they still have to obey laws in general. But I think what I, I I imagine what happens is they buy their property where they have their their communities on, and they um, it, they essentially just we leave you guys alone and you leave us alone. Right. I, I think that's kind of uh, the deal that they have. Oh, okay, but I, I'm not I'm not really sure about how the the whole legal situation works. Yeah, you know, that's 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 up in Pennsylvania and Indiana and stuff like that. So I'm. I don't really get. I don't really have a lot, any real um, uh, interaction with with that with Amish people. No, <laughs> right. I, that's something I would have to look into more too. That seems. I mean, it's like I know. Uh, I know the Weird Al song. The Weird Al. Right. Al yeah. <laughs> the Amish Rhapsody. Yeah. Totally. Cool, man. Well, hey, thanks for doing this with me. And where can people find more information on what you're doing? Center Mass Podcast and what else? Right, so Center Center Mass Podcast and um, Anarchistition. Uh, I haven't been doing anything with Anarchistition for a while, but since my contract's ending, I'll, I'll probably uh, try to do a little bit more with that in the, in the coming months. And um, sometimes I'll pop up on, on Liberate RVA. 
I'm going to be doing a lot with uh, uh, with them at Anarchon in in two weekends. We're having a, a festival up in up in Northern Virginia. Dope. So, huh? Yeah. Cool, man. Well, good luck uh, with the anarchist movement. Maybe one day I'll become a part of it. Link up Definitely. to Canada and start one up here or something. <laughs> oh, absolutely. We'd, we'd be ecstatic to have you. Cool, man. Well, hey, thanks again, buddy. Oh, thank you. This was, this was great.